forgot. Still imagining somebody with a big toe as a head, so I'm lost basically for the rest of this interview. How are you? Oh, I submitted grades for spring 2019 semester this morning. So that is all done. Let the emails of discontent begin. I tell them their grades like a week ahead of time. And I'm like, look, this is your grade. You have five days to email me and finish sending me all of your stuff. If I don't hear from you, this is what's going in. So what's going on with you? How's life? What are you up to? Uh, so we're trying to sell our house in Albany. Uh, our offer on a house in South Bend, Indiana has been accepted. And the thought of paying two mortgages if this house doesn't sell is about as terrifying as it gets. So when this episode airs, (laughs) we will already be moved. (laughs) You will be moved. This problem will just think about it that way. It's stressful now, but when this airs, all your problems will be resolved. Potentially, I could still be paying two mortgages when this airs. <laughs> That's true. <I> won't. <laughs> Let's hope that is not the case. Well, I'm excited because when this episode airs, I will have been to Samoa again for uh, this time for a month. I haven't. I've only been to Samoa proper, not American Samoa, for a couple days, mm. and I'm going to be there this summer. Why is up- that? Because I got a winter grand grant. Congratulations on the winter grand. Thank you. And that pays for us to analyze saliva samples that we collected last year. And for me to start a new, what I hope to be four or five year project studying uh, the sort of the cultural resilience of Samoans via their tattooing practices, their traditional, I hate to use the word traditional, but the traditional tattooing practices. And yeah. even cooler, I have a videographer named Adam Boer who did, uh, who does documentaries. He did The Last Bone Setter for one of our previous interviewees, Kathy Oaths, when they were in working in, and Hannah Smith, they worked in Peru with Adam and did a documentary on the last indigenous Peruvian person who sets broken bones by hand. So cool. And it's it's beautifully done. And he's really interested in this story. So it looks like he's going to be coming with me this summer. How long will you be there? I'll be there for like three and a half weeks. I think he's going to come in the second half. And we're going to be working with Suluape Alivaa Patelo and his family. He is the paramount chief or the high chief of Samoan tattooing. He's mm-hmm. retiring this year. They're having a big festival in November that I can't go to, but hopefully I can work with him this summer and re-up the permission I have from him to work with the tattooing community there because the consent and support of the chief is super, super important. It's like the most important thing, basically. The most thing, basically. <laughs> with IRB being the step below. <laughs> exactly. You need chief approval in order to get IRB approval. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I'm stoked. It's going to be fun. And I'll have lots of stories to tell over the next coming episodes. Very cool. Yep. With that news, who's our guest today, Chris? Because you're the one who found her. 
I don't actually know this person today. Yeah. Oh, well, so we're talking, you probably do. We're talking to <laughs> Tina Lasisi, and she's really active on Twitter. So you've probably come across her work. She is a student of Nina Jablonski, who we have talked to on the pod before and has come here. And Nina told me about Tina a long time ago when we were looking for a biocultural anthropologist to come work at University of Alabama. And Nina was like, I have a student who's not quite ready, but in a few years, if you have another position, she will be. And I just happened to see a link to, I believe it was a medium, the the magazine medium that had a piece on hair pigmentation and morphology that Mm -hmm had interviewed or that Tina had played a part of. So Tina's work is super cool. Yeah, seems like it. This is yeah. kind of the first time I've looked at it. And the second question we've got is, it's going to really get to the point of, this is something you totally would expect to have been done already, and it hasn't. Right? Like we study skin pigmentation but and aspects of morphology, but what about hair? Yeah. And I also find it interesting. And so this is going to be a personal anecdote, which means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things, I'm sure. But when people come up with all these like, quote unquote, racial classifications of hair, one is, of course, is bullshit just because racial classifications are bullshit. But two, from my own experience, my hair texture has changed a huge amount just through my own life. Like, I was born with red hair. <laughs> I was a born redhead. Yeah. And I now have dark hair. And I've gone from, like, super curly to wavy to straight to ringlet curls back to whatever is going on right now. And so I find it, like, very hard for people to come up with some of these ideas of just, like, these are definitive defining features of certain geographical individual hair, whatever. Because, like, that changes throughout life. It does. And, and as, as you know, I have triplet boys who look in many ways similar but you know one of the crazy things is they were all born toe-headed and uh relatively curly and all three of their hairs have changed over the course of their life and they're all very different also you use a term i've never heard before toe-headed yeah super blonde ah i've never how how is the toe spelled t-o-e t-o-w okay so i'm literally thinking of a head that looks like a toe like from somebody's yeah i don't know where that comes from Neither do I. This is why I asked. I learned something new today. Maybe Tina does. Maybe. We can ask. Toe-headed. Yeah, no, I'm just imagining somebody with a head and like a giant nail coming off their forehead. No, it's like like that. It's like that blonde white kid hair. Interesting. Enough about us and our parochial, provincial ideas of hair pigmentation. Hello, Tina. Hi. I'm Kara. You and I have never met. No. Hi, Kara. I'm Tina. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, I'm Chris. We just met on Twitter, I think. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I feel like I recognize your facial hair. It's quite distinctive. I feel like I've seen you in person. It's possible. It's possible. We've probably all seen each other, and we've probably all tweeted each other, and we've probably done all those things. I remember one of our very, very first interviews, I think it was our second podcast, was your advisor, Mm -hmm. was Nina Jablonski, and she told us about you way back when, so... You've been on our radar oh, for a wow. time. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Since I already said it on the podcast when, when we were introducing you, I'll, I'll tell you too, so it won't come as a surprise. I'm in a biocultural program here, or that's our, that's our grad program. And we were hiring, mm-hmm. I think, two years ago, uh, right after she was here. And that's what she said. I have a student who will be perfect for this. She just 
needs to bake for about another year or so. But <laughs> I'm you know, 80% certain she didn't name names, but she was talking about you. So I was well, like, who could the student be? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go around her and like physically bring her here if I can. Um, well, I won't fight you on that. I mean, uh, who am I as a millennial to you know, pass up on a job? Well, true. I'll remember that. We may have something for you very shortly. So anyway. No, make no promises. Make no promises. I'm not making any promises, but I'm always, we're always recruiting down here. We've been building our program for a good long while. So Welcome so to the Sausage of Science. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. Words. <laughs> Thank you. So the way we always start off is we want to know more about the person. We're going to start and end by knowing about the person in the middle. We, we want to hear about your research, but tell us about your anthropology origin story. How'd you get interested in anthropology and decide to pursue a PhD in it? Okay, so slightly long and weird story, but I was not necessarily interested in anthropology growing up. Uh, by that, I mean, like, you know, I didn't know about it before the end of high school. And I grew up in Europe. Uh, being like half Bulgarian, half Nigerian, just generalized foreign, I was really interested in cultures and different cultures. So when I was applying to university, I wanted to do something with that. And I really liked languages, cultures. At first, I was going to study Japanese. But last minute, I decided not to apply for it because I was like, well, you should not narrow yourself down to one culture. But, you know, kind of flipping through the catalog of programs, I saw anthropology and it sounded kind of cool. I was like, oh, wow, anthropology. It sounds like what I want to do. Unfortunately, there's this like bio and art part, but whatever. I'm sure I won't have to do much of that. Um, so I went to school in England um, at Cambridge. They taught, the, you know, the kind of three part arc and anth system. Unlike the American one, they didn't do linguistic anthropology at all. And at the end of my first year, I remember having a lecture on the evolution of skin pigmentation. Mm. And I remember that it really struck me, made a really big impression on me because I had always, like everyone, you know, been aware that people look different, but I'd never actually thought about it in an evolutionary context. Mm. And what made the biggest impression on me was this diagram that I'm sure tons of us have seen of a map of UV radiation next to a map of the distribution of skin pigmentation. And mm. that is like, when you see that, you're like, whoa, whoa, it makes so much sense. And that just started bringing up all these questions into my head. And one of the things that I was asking myself was, well, okay, cool. So that's skin color, but what about hair? Like, that's also pretty variable. And I remember asking my advisor, my supervisor at the time, and I looked into it. I couldn't find anything. I looked really hard, you know, with my, you know, freshly gained Google Scholar skills. <laughs> yeah. Who's your advisor? At the time, my undergraduate uh, advisor was uh, Colin Shaw. So he was a bone person. So I, I started off my journey with bone people. But yeah, I couldn't find anything. So he said, well, I guess that's going to be your dissertation. And yeah. I did a really extensive undergraduate thesis on that. I did my own little research. And, you know, there was a, there was a really cute moment where I really thought I was going to solve the evolution of hair <laughs> as an undergrad. Oh my God, God bless my heart. But obviously I didn't. And I'm a very stubborn person. So I really wanted to get the answer to my question. All I ended up figuring out was, oh wow, there are all these problems. This explains why nobody has done that. And I kind of became obsessed with this question. And my undergraduate advisor happened to know Nina because um, 
he had done his postdoc at Penn State. And so I got introduced and completely stumbled into this PhD. So could you maybe tell us some of those problems that you found when you were doing your undergraduate undergraduate thesis that, that made you think like, right, this is why it hasn't been done. So what were some of those stumbling blocks that you came across that now you're trying to, you know, knock down? Yeah. So when I was starting out doing this research, I was obviously overly ambitious. So I was like, oh, I'm going to fix hair morphology and pigmentation. And essentially what I found out is that when it comes to pigmentation, unlike for skin color where you have a reflectance spectrophotometer that you just kind of jab onto somebody's arm and you take your measurement, that doesn't really work for hair. Part of that is because hair is not a flat surface. So if you're trying to measure reflectance, then you know the individual fibers are going to mess with that. Like You can't get really good readings. And there are methods to actually measure the chemical content of hair. So you can actually measure how much of different types of melanin you have. But that is actually really expensive in terms of resources, and it requires you to literally be a chemist. So that's one of the problems. And then for hair fiber morphology, it seems like anthropologists kind of forgot about it after, I want to say, the 1940s, probably because it's a very racialized trait. So this is something we've kind of seen a little bit with skin color and it made a comeback. Because it's one of the first traits that anthropologists talked about in terms of, you know, classifying people into different races, it has a lot of this baggage. Mm -hmm. It kind of got, you know, dropped in the early 1930s. And it didn't really get picked up by anthropologists again, but a lot of people studying cosmetology have looked into it. But hair morphology is relatively hard to measure if you want to look at the curl. You can measure cross-sectional fiber morphology. It's pretty straightforward. It's embedding, cross-sectioning, you got it. But when it comes to the hair fiber morphology, it's pretty hard. You need to decide what it is that you want to measure, how you want to prepare the hair, if you want to do image analysis. And previously, all the things that people had done had been pretty time intensive. So when you look at the way in which anthropologists study phenotypes today, I mean, essentially, it's bound to genetics. Like, no one really just asks about phenotype these days. And if you're thinking about the sample sizes that GWAP studies are working with, there's no way you can spend an hour and a half per hair sample Mm -hmm. on this. So that's kind of the conclusion that I came to. Like, there are methods. It is possible. But it is a very big investment in time. And very importantly people aren't really aware of the extent to which this is a continuous variable trait. People really conceptualize it as something categorical. This is something that you see in cosmetology as well. People will talk about African hair, European hair, and Asian hair. You will see that up until something published yesterday. People are convinced that this is true. People will not talk that way about skin color anymore. But they cannot think of hair in any other way because they see it as such a typological trait. A lot of forensic investigators who work on hair fibers, this is something that the FBI, you know, got in trouble for because a lot of people have falsely been convicted. One of the things that they do in their fiber analyses is try and figure out what the racial origin of the hair is. So like it's very deeply embedded in in a lot of hair research. Wow. You're blowing my mind. One. Can I go back to you and ask you about you and then continue down this? Um, Because you said you're Bulgarian, Nigerian, grew up in Europe. Yeah. Uh, Our listeners and me are going to wonder why you sound like an American. 
Yeah, I get this a lot, but basically I was raised by the television and I watched, (laughs) I mean, look, I watched a lot of Friends, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was a favorite of mine, The Nanny. Um, And so I came out sounding kind of pretty much like this. I sounded American before I ever stepped foot on U.S. soil. It's actually really weird. You can ask people that I went to Cambridge with. They were very confused. And, you know, even when I come here and I tell people, oh, I'm not American, they just look at me really funny and ask, are you Canadian then? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's so, so, you know, I just want to note, and, you know, we can revisit this at the end, but you're, you are really active on Twitter. You're really active in terms of uh, social justice issues and decolonizing anthropology. So your credentials are impeccable. Like you have a, in terms of like having a worldly perspective, that just, that just blows my mind. So anyway. I'm okay. definitely going to put that on my CV from now on. Like Which part? All of the compliments. Okay. Worldly perspective, according to Chris Berlin. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that that's what we we try we try to train students in anthropology to get out in the world. I mean, I'm in Alabama now, where we just outlawed abortion, right? So to have worldly perspectives is something we encourage every student to do to prevent such dehumanizing policies. So, mm-hmm. like your your research is about biology, but it's it's also inherently about a social justice issue and not and not categorizing people based on observable mm-hmm. characteristics, right? So Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm I'm glad that you brought this up because in terms of the hair research, I, I can't get away from it. I have some undergraduate research assistants with that I'm working right with right now and I have tried to introduce them to literature research. And I remember one of them telling me, Wow, Tina, it's so racist, all of this literature. Like I'm like Like they were actually, you know, upset. And I'm just so numb to it because for the last five years, I've just been used to reading this and people don't realize the extent to which, you know, subtle racism is actually featuring in a lot of this scientific research because my pet peeve especially is evolutionary psychology and sexual selection theory because it's essentially a way of justifying value judgments on phenotypes um, with like zero empirical evidence. Love that. Um, But this is a, like, you know, having an understanding that people can have different perspectives is something that I find unfortunately lacking in anthropology. Um, I think that it's important that anthropologists are aware of the fact that resources for research are not evenly distributed around the world. And this is something that a lot of anthropologists have started to talk about. But that means that some of us get to ask questions that others never will. And it means that some people will stay, you know, the subjects of research while others get to be researchers. And really important in anthropology that we try and get these different perspectives, because when it comes to coming up with hypotheses, that is incredibly subjective. I mean, you can argue that the rest of the scientific process, to some extent, may be objective, but the hypotheses that you come up with are informed by your life experience. And your life experience is limited. And when it comes to human phenotype, and especially if we're talking about what's attractive or not attractive or useful or functional, you only stand to gain from getting more perspectives on that. Mm-hmm. 
Part of, so this goes back to something Chris and I were talking about actually before we brought you on. And you saying, I don't think I was fully aware that the FBI was still using like these incredibly racist techniques. I shouldn't be taken aback, but part of me is taken aback because it means there's such cherry picking of not only the science that's out there, but also lived experience. So Chris and I were both talking, I was born a redhead. Throughout my life, my hair color has changed. I've gone from straight hair to really curly hair naturally, which means, and Chris's kids were born like white blonde and now one of them has hair my color, super dark. Mm -hmm. Which means, I can't imagine anyone in the FBI, for example, would not have had a similar experience. To be yeah. like, not only do these racial categories not hold up, but just a category in particular might not even hold up within one person's lifespan. Yeah. And so that means they are being willfully ignorant of their own lived experience in order to put in these kind of oppressive practices. Yeah. There's a lot of layers to this. There are forensic fiber analysts who are very much aware of this and who are incredibly responsible. When they go on the witness stand, they tell people like, you know, there's a lot of variation even within a single individual. But, you know, you guys would know the American justice system better than I do, but they want to hear what they want to hear and they want to hear a clear binary. Um, there's been a lot of uh, like exposés on how scientists speak to juries and what they actually ask them to guarantee. Like scientists frequently cannot guarantee, but lawyers will ask them to say like, you know, to the best of your knowledge, like, you know, is this scientifically true or not? Like, is it going to be this person or not? So a lot is asked of, you know, forensic fiber analysts, but also inherently in there are some assumptions about what is an essential trait. Mm. When it comes to race, that is one of the most essentialized things. Like you'll, you'll see some discussion in, in forensic papers about, well, you know, pigmentation variation, like, you know, it, it's going to be variable and like, you know, blah, 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 these differences. But when it comes to race, they think this is a mongoloid hair, this is a negroid hair, and this is terms that you will find at least until, you know, 2006, I've seen some papers. And it has to do with how people conceptualize human variation in general, like on a populational scale. This is something we've seen blown up. I mean, just because you replace race by population doesn't make the problem go away. Mm. And this is especially, in my opinion, dangerous in the United States because there are a lot, it's a very admixed population. Like, even if you wanted to say there are differences between Northern Europeans, West Africans, and Indigenous Americans, those are not the simple categories that exist. A lot of people are going to fall in between the categories. And if you decide to go one way or another, if that's a missing person you're looking for, you may not find them. If they did not racialize themselves the same way you're racializing them, that is something that then becomes lost. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I tell students this all the time. Like the stats on forensics are that they're what, 80 or 90% accurate in yeah. recognizing race if they already know how the person actually self-identifies, but, yeah. but otherwise it's like zero. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is something that I get a lot of pushback on as well, because yeah, like when the AAPAs came out with a statement on race and we were on Twitter, Twitter being Twitter, people just lost it. They were like, humans don't all look the same. And I'm like, literally, I study human variation. I agree with you. But it's just so much more complicated, and especially now when you also have a lot of recent East African immigrants. They're not going to have 
like, you know, hair that's necessarily comparable to people with West African ancestry. All of these things that become more complex and people are so hung up on the fact that they think they can recognize things. Mm -hmm. And um, with my students, I try to break that down by not telling them, okay, race doesn't exist, but by using like this really cool um, exercise that was developed by Ted Disitel and someone else, but essentially you have pictures from people all over the world and you ask your students, okay, I'm not going to tell you race doesn't exist, but put them where you think they come from. Mm-hmm. And invariably people will fail because our categories that we think we see don't necessarily align with what is out there and they're very informed by, by where we grew up. I've done this exercise in England and I've done it in the US. Mm-hmm. In England, nobody had the category of Hispanic. For me, like as a European, Hispanic is such a strange category, but it's such a logical one in the States. Here, I had, haven't had a single student categorize someone as North African or, or Eastern European. That's not like a category they're very familiar mm-hmm. with. And invariably, people see a Melanesian or an Aborigin, uh, Aboriginal Australian, and they say they're African because that is what you're taught an African person looks like. So I think it's very powerful to actually tell people, like, well, look, you try it. Yeah. Human beings are so stuck up on having clear-cut lines of categories that the idea of those lines being blurred or not really existing because it's a continuum, I feel like minds just cannot handle that. That, That for so long, these ideas of categories have existed that it's just incomprehensible to think that there's a continuum instead. Well, can I ask you, so you shared with us a 2016 article, and now I realize this is with your undergrad advisor, Colin Shaw, from AGPA, quantifying variation in human scalp hair fiber shape and pigmentation. So one of the points that you, you make there, and you've touched on already, is that there's no such thing as African hair. So I think that's clear, but what did your study tell you about pigmentation and hair fiber shape? Well, to be completely honest, my study told me more about what's wrong with the way that I was asking questions. So, you know, throw back to me, like, you know, graduating from, from undergrad and like, you know, having like no resources and no genetic aspect to this. I asked this question and I did this study in the same way that a lot of classical anthropology is done and a lot of like work on, you know, contrasting populations is done. I had my groups, I did my ANOVA and it was not giving me the analysis that I, that I wanted to get. So this is, I made the same mistake that a lot of people do in analysis, which is thinking if I find a difference between, in averages between people, between means, then I'm seeing something interesting, but what are you going to do with that? So with my sample, I ran into the the problem that I couldn't categorize everyone and I didn't know where to put people in groups. I had to exclude to some extent people who were, you know, recently admixed because it didn't fit the preconceived categories that I needed for my statistical analysis. So Mm -hmm. if I'm a hundred percent honest, that is what I learned from that study, like how not to ask questions and how to think in an evolutionary sense, because just contrasting populations doesn't tell me anything about how something evolves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have a category of Africans, but they're from all over the continent and there's a lot of variation. If I contrast them to Asians, that's a huge continent with a lot of different climates. What kind of evolutionary question can I ask? So what I learned there is that you need to be looking at a much finer scale. 
you need to be looking at a much finer scale and you need to be evolutionarily informed and ideally using genetic data because you can't assume just because people say they're from somewhere that they're less or more related to each other. So well, I essentially told you that everything I did back then was wrong. I think a lot of people feel this way about their past research. Yeah, no, but I think that's important and it, it's a heuristic right? We need to be able to problematize our research. And it then generates questions and pushes us in directions that are productive. So yeah. how has that moved you forward? I'll, I'll preface this by saying the NSF proposal that you shared, mm-hmm. you talk about using a tool you've developed for measuring hair fiber morphology. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and where you, which direction you're going? Mm-hmm. So, um, all of the experiences that I had from that initial study that I published in 2016 brought me to a point where I knew I had to perfect or in any case optimize the methodology because I want everyone to be studying it this way. There's plenty of people who've asked questions about, you know, hair uh, and GWASs, but they, you know, categorize people's hair. Like instead, I want them to have this tool and be able to use it. What's GWAS? Sorry, um, genome-wide association studies. Okay. Yeah. So there's been association studies um, in England and in Europe on hair. And essentially they categorize people as, oh, you have straight hair or wavy hair or curly hair. And that's just not good enough. But I also knew that the methods I was using in 2016 took too much time. So essentially what I did, long story short, is working on sample preparation methods that are high throughput. And I am developing an image analysis tool with a partner here that is based on MATLAB, but I'm working on making it available on our free software as well. And essentially it will do the measurements for you. Whereas in the past, even before image analysis, people would use transparencies with arcs of different sizes to approximate the curl. What you do here is you take a picture of it and you just chuck it into the program and it would spit out this quantitative measure of curvature for your sample. Cool, cool. Yeah. How close are you to finishing up, actually? Where are you at in your program? So, I... Biggest question ever. I aspire to be done in a year. That is the plan. That is the plan. I actually got really lucky and ended up getting the NSF, so now that is going to fund... Thank you. Congrats. Uh, That's going to fund the a lot of the genotyping that I'm doing. So I've decided to focus on African-Americans and I'm going to be doing admixture mapping. So admixture-based association study to look at this huge range of variation. So what I'm really excited about is that I'll be able to really show people. So all of these people that you would have categorized as having frizzy hair, look at this variation that's in there. And this is actually really, really informative about what regions of the genome are associated with hair fiber So that is what I'm going to be doing over the next year. There's a lot of sample collection involved and learning involved. And then there's also some functional things that I'm doing because I also want to see if there's any kind of variation in heat load, depending on what kind of hair morphology a person has. Oh yeah, I missed that question. I really wanted to know more about the thermal regulation of hair morphology. Can you quickly give us a summary of what you know about that? Yeah. So essentially this speaks to the evolutionary questions behind this. Why do humans have scalp hair in the first place? If you think about it, that's really weird. There's a lot of hairy mammals. There's a lot of naked mammals, but we're the only weirdos that have hair on our scalps, but not anywhere else. 
So in and of itself, like that should be a question of human uniqueness. But funnily enough, no one ever speaks about it, um, except Wheeler of bipedalism for thermoregulation fame. Uh, he briefly talked about that. Nina is a person who talked about tightly curled hair potentially being useful to minimize heat gain from solar radiation. So now I'm using experimental approaches using something called a thermal mannequin, which is like this robot looking computer thing that allows you to measure the insulation of different types of clothes. But if you use wigs instead of clothing, you can get to like the insulation of hair essentially. And I'm going to be running some experiments with human subjects as well to look at that. And essentially my preliminary results say that it seems to be true that there is some significant kind of protective effect of having tightly curled hair. It essentially minimizes the amount of heat from solar radiation that gets to your scalp mm-hmm. and it maximizes the amount of heat that you can lose. I mean, I was surprised because I thought, oh, maybe there'd be some small effect, but it's actually pretty apparent. And mm-hmm. obviously we're going to have to replicate this and see how it works out in real humans. But that was pretty exciting. Do you think it also, the, the tightly curled hair reduces exposure of direct scalp to the sun. So I think of like part, like I can't get away without having a part in my hair somewhere. It just happens. Mm-hmm. And that always gets sunburned. <laughs> I mean, it seriously does. If I don't remember yeah. to put sunscreen on my part, I get yeah. sunburned. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's, uh, there's also a similar thing going on there with different types of hair? So that might be the case. And that brings me to like, you know, one of those future directions, I'm really interested in density. So hair density like varies um, between populations and I wonder the extent to which, you know, this is interacting with skin pigmentation. So this kind of focuses on the timing, like when would this have occurred? And essentially what I'm thinking right now is that early on in human evolution, when humans became bipedal, once they were bipedal, we see, you know, early bipedal uh, hominins with a relatively small brain size and then becoming more gracile, having larger brains. So some of the things have been said is that that is when they would have developed more specialized sweat glands, naked skin to thermoregulate, and they would have potentially developed this type of hair then as well. So if you think of that combination of maximizing your cooling by having all these sweat glands, but also keeping your brain safe, that might have been one of the things that allowed, that released the constraint on brain size. Wow. Yeah, I think that's something that we're definitely going to, to have to, to measure. It makes a lot of sense because when you think of down feathers, it's the ability to hold air. But I know down works and it's so warm because it can trap air effectively and efficiently. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think of Nina's research on the several different mutations leading to lighter skin pigmentation. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a similar story for hair that is straight and and thinner in that regard. So that's also really interesting because the converse of what I found is that straight hair is very, very insulating. So one of the things that we have a lot of evidence of is a particular variant of the gene EDAR being at a very high frequency in East Asians. So was that potentially something that was associated with not just thick hair, but straight hair? Did it have some kind of protective effect in you know, a cold climate? Wow, who knows? Like this, this would be all really interesting stuff to look at. Wow, super cool, Kira. Uh, we're about out of time. Do you want to uh, ask her the fun question? No, it's just one of these things. Like we could talk to you, I think, for like seven hours without a problem. 
Yeah. Uh, but this is one of these really amazing, it's a human biology topic and a human evolution topic. And you have bridged those so well for someone still so early in their career. It's crazy impressive. I don't think I had anywhere near the grasp on what I was doing that you do uh, at a similar point in my career. And I, I don't know, I'm kind of blown away by you. What do you do for fun? Reading, watching, listening to, hobbies, anything? So what I do for fun, I have a really masochistic streak, so I love to be on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I spend probably a little too much time on, on Twitter and Instagram. And you straight up engage the trolls. It's so dumb. Why do I keep doing it? It's like, you know, when people say, like, don't look in the comment section. Don't look. And that's exactly what I do. But there's a lot of great people on there. I mean, like, you know, I feel like I know you guys from Twitter. Um, so that's a lot of fun. But actually, I also just got a pupper. So I have my little doggo, Winston. Um, so I like to play around with him. And I watch a lot of TV still. Favorite show? You have a show right now that you're really into? As many people who watch Game of Thrones, I currently have mixed feelings about. Mixed? I'm years. just enraged. I'm not even mixed anymore. I'm downright just, I'm ready to burn it to the ground. So. <laughs> like you and someone else. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I just started watching Stranger Things. Uh, so you, would you like to share your Twitter handle? Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Tina Lassisi, same handle everywhere. Um, and yeah, like, you know, just send me a message and I'll reply every now and then I look through my DMs. <laughs> I just sent you a follow or I just followed you on Twitter. You have a locked thing. So it's like, following pending i'm like oh okay yeah yeah so that's just like you know from the last few days i was like i need a break <laughs> we'll be unlocked soon <laughs> no worries no worries so uh, other than what we <laughs> talked about do you have anything oh, you want to promote no not necessarily just you know drink some water say something nice to someone have a nice day i like that i do need to drink some water kara mm -hmm. you're awesome there we go i covered that second one She's drinking the water. There we go. I've got my water right here, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, well, we've been the Saucer of Science. I'm Chris. I'm one of your co-hosts. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y. And I'm Kara, the other co-host. You can find me at Kara Akabak. Tina, you are fantastic. And I'm super excited to see everything that you do from, like, your entire career, which is going to be extremely successful. Well, thank you so much, guys. It was uh, really great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. So follow Tina on all of the things and like us on all the other things. And, and share us. Share. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. All right, Tina. Thank you.